the Reformation Study Bible comments on John 20.18 as follows. As in Matthew 28.9, a woman whose testimony was considered unreliable in Jewish culture is the first eyewitness to see the risen Lord. The Christ who humbled himself reaches out and welcomes those whom others marginalize. This detail also demonstrates that the Gospels report of Jesus' resurrection appearances are sober history, not products of human imagination. No inventor of a fictional account would damage its credibility by basing its claims on the experiences and words of women if said women had not been witnesses to the event. End quote. Interestingly, John refers to woman 21 times in the gospel. Twelve of those occurrences are in John 4. Um, Paul comes close to John's use of the word woman. You will recall that the narrative of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, the first record of witness concerning Jesus Christ, was John the Baptist. He came in order to be a witness. We read that in John 1.7. He, that is John, came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. John bore witness of him and cried out saying, This was he from, of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John 1.15 The next mention of verbal testimony regarding Jesus is in John 4 and the narrative of the Samaritan woman. As Jesus is talking with this woman, carrying on a, a, a conversation with her, really a dialogue going back and forth, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? John chapter 4, verse 25 through 29. Once the Samaritans in that village hear the woman's testimony, and I emphasize testimony, they go out to see Jesus. Note well their response. John four thirty-nine to 41. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. On what does John emphasize, emphasis fall in the beginning of the gospel? Well, it falls on the testimony of witnesses. These witnesses have been preserved for us in the gospel accounts. The emphasis falls rightly on the word revealing what we need to believe. Therefore, John writes at the end of his gospel account, many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John 20 verse 20 to 31. 
And then in John 21, 25, we read, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that, which were written. Well, today I want to consider the testimony of the written word to Jesus. Our focus is narrowly on John 20, 30-31, and 21-25. And I want to consider the following points. First, seeing is not believing. Seeing is not believing. Secondly, believing is trusting in Christ as revealed in Scripture. And third, believing is having confidence in the sufficiency of the written word. Now before we consider those, let's, let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do give you thanks today for your love and your goodness to us. We pray that you would open our eyes and give us wisdom and insight into the knowledge of your will. Help us to see that the scripture is sufficient for our salvation. It doesn't tell us everything we need to know. It's not a history book, though it records history. But everything that's recorded has one focus, and that focus is the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see him in all when in all of the scripture when we read and help us to hear the testimony of John this morning as we consider his words. Thank you, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Okay, first of all then, seeing is not believing. Not everything Jesus did is called a sign. They talk about many signs in the gospel. John talks about many signs. But there are certain ones for some reason that he emphasizes. For example, the first sign was the, the turning of the water into wine at the, at the marriage of the Canaan uh, and Galilee. That was called the first sign that Jesus did. Then later on the gospel, this is the second sign that Jesus did. So John's pulling out certain ones and for our attention. And I have to be honest, I haven't thought through any of that to understand why that might be that way. But he does call other things signs. Uh, we could say that John's gospel has been divided into two major sections, the book of signs and the book of glory. Now, I didn't make up that division. Uh, that was, uh, I forget his name, Raymond Brown. I think he's a Roman Catholic commentator, very astute. Um, and he made up that division, and uh, it seems to hold that that's the case. The first part of the book is uh, on the a book of uh, signs, and the second part is uh, turns in John chapter 13 to be on the book of glory. Now that doesn't mean that the word signs isn't used after John 13. Uh, it's just a point of emphasis, that in the first part there's an emphasis on signs, and uh, there's a there's a mention of glory. In the second part, there's a mention of signs, but there's an emphasis on glory. That's all that's being stated there. Now, signs and glory, as I said, are mentioned throughout the book. It's a point of emphasis. But they cannot prove anything unless you believe. Now, I want to show you, as you go through John, what happens in John is that his glory seems to be focused on the crucifixion. Um, we read in John chapter 7, verse 39, um, that Jesus spoke of the Spirit. 
um, uh, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Um, again, as they're looking towards what Jesus is saying about um, to them, the disciples uh, did not understand at the first what then they understand. I think they didn't understand about the resurrection. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had they had done these things to him. So they're talking about the crucifixion. They rem- remembered after, after the fact. So the sign-glory distinction um, is intended to say that Jesus was, isn't intended to say that Jesus was not glorified in some sense prior to the crucifixion. But at the crucifixion, he was definitely glorified. As he um, talks about Lazarus. What is the focus in Lazarus on the resurrection, is it not? So, when Jesus talks to Mary, he says, um, when Jesus heard heard this, he said, this sickness, or to the disciples, I mean, he said, this sickness that they had heard about is not unto death, but what? But for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. But what is the focus? Again, it's resurrection. So, I think the focus of glory in the gospel is on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus was glorified through his signs and wonders. However, the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection was the glory to which Jesus looked. In fact, the greatest glory in John seems to have been the crucifixion. And it was there that God was glorified because his righteousness and love and his wrath and his grace were most clearly manifested. Paul brings that out for us in Romans chapter 3, or in Galatians chapter 3, when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been having become a curse for us, for it is written, everyone who hangs on a cross, uh, or hangs, everyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. But then we read in Romans 5, God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you have, on the one hand, Christ becoming a curse because of the law, which the, the law required that required that. So you have the you have the justice and the wrath of God, but then you also have the love of God being demonstrated on the cross when Christ when Christ died for us. But now these signs that John mentions had a specific purpose. And that purpose was to get people to see Christ revealed to them. So we read that he when he was um that there was a multitude who believed in him and they were saying, when the Christ come, he shall not perform more signs than those which this man has. Will he? John chapter 7 verse 31. Well, the Pharisees were of the opposite opinion. They said this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them, John chapter 9. So the signs were divisive, but they, the people did believe them. Some people, and the Pharisees didn't. Uh, signs were pointers to Jesus as the Messiah. They were acts done by Jesus that identified him as the one whom the prophets foretold. And some genuinely believed the signs. However, others were attracted by the signs for other reasons. 
So in John chapter 6, we have a report of the feeding of the 5,000. These people followed Jesus because he had performed the sign of feeding them. They believed that he might be a prophet, maybe even the prophet. But notice what Jesus says to them in John 6.26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So people were, you know, people are just like us today. What do we want? How does all this, how does all this benefit us? Um, I'm going to have to sit down. So um, I'm going to turn this down a little bit. Uh, there we go. I have, to, I have to sit down. I apologize. Things are getting warming up here. So, um, uh, There are people today who claim to serve Christ, but they do so for other reasons, right? There are people who, for example, want to get together. I, I just saw this. It was a little, um, what do you call it, a clip, a video clip. I saw it. And a, and a pastor was ranting and raving. He was angry because now they can't sing seven songs instead of four. I mean, they, sing, they can't sing seven, they have to sing four. And that bothered him. And was like, okay, but uh, the four are honoring to God, right? And isn't that the point we get together, is to praise God? We only sing four hymns. I'm not angry about that. And ne- neither should you be. We're singing hymns, but God wants us to do that. But there's no, he doesn't say you have to sing ten, or you have to sing twelve, or you have to sing... He doesn't even say, if we sang one it will be sufficient. Our, if we recite a psalm, that's a sense in which we're singing because the psalm, the Psalter was a songbook of, of Israel. They didn't all sing these jingle songs that we sing today. Most of what they did was a chant that we would be kind of unfamiliar with. Well, did they sing a ton of them? I don't know. But that's not the point. The point isn't how many. The point's never on quantity. It's on the quality of what we do. And so, yes, and I'm not saying that that pastor is a bad person, and I don't mean anything by that, except to say that oftentimes, when we, even us, when we come to a worship service, we focus on ourselves, right? We really do. We, uh, um, this, is, this is important, and I have to say this, and I don't mean anything by it. It's going to sound negative, but please uh, don't take it that way. Often when our discussions of uh, dissolution, and I was the same, often our discussions when we thought about dissolving the church, church focused on the fact that we wanted to stay together. That was really one of the main focuses. We want to stay together. Well, that's good. I'm glad we want to stay together. But is that a reason to have a church, that we stay together? Or is there, are there other reasons that we should be saying we need to have a church? For example, Matthew 28, go into all, therefore go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. So are we doing that? That would be one reason why we should really stick together because we're involved in making disciples. Do we do that? 
And, um, and that's a challenge to all of us. But why do, why do we want to stay at church? Why do we get together? We have to think through those things, not because we're wrong to want to be together, but because we need to focus on what does God want us to do? And he, we're only going to know that from his word. We're not going to get some, you know, um, dream. I had a dream last night that was kind of neat, but I can't, what, <laughs> it was a dream. I, I actually interpreted the dream and I thought, yeah, that's true. But that doesn't mean that God said, tell me to do it. Just because I have a, a sense of something or things work out, just, people always do that. You know, if the circumstances work out, it's God's will. How do you know that that's true? You don't know that that's true. That just means that God worked out the details in his providence. It doesn't mean that he wants you to do that. And so often that's what people do, especially when they're going to seminary. I prayed all summer and God led me to go to seminary. What did he do? You know, when I decided to be a pastor, I decided no. That was my first decision. But what verse kept coming up to me was Second Timothy chapter four. This reiterated, this was this reverberated in my mind for years. Therefore, preach the word in season and out of season. Rebuke, reprove, exhort with all patience and long suffering. That that verse just kept reverberating in my mind. I would push it away and then reverberate my mind. Push it away and reverberate in my mind. And so does that mean that God wanted me to go to Bible college and be a pastor? No, it doesn't. But I had a conviction that came out of Scripture, not one that just was, that I fabricated. I often wonder whether I should have ever been a pastor, but that one thing I always remind, keep going back to that one thing, that's what you're supposed to do. And uh, it's not just me, it's the church that's supposed to do that. So... Anyway, um, the sign and glory distinction really is not intended to make a great big distinction, but to point out that um, they all point to Christ. Jesus was glorified through his signs and wonders. However, the crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection was the glory to which Jesus looked. So then we look at what, the, what was the purpose of the signs? Why, why did Jesus do them? Well, they believed, we see in John 7, when, uh, is, is the Christ. They understood who the Christ was. Um, it's interesting to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. I just did this, by the way, uh, to see the emphasis uh, of uh, how they, the, Dead sea, the Dead Sea community, they, they really focused on reading books like Isaiah and stuff like that. They seemed to be a group looking for um, the Messiah. So that idea was, was really prevalent in the days of Christ. Um, but when Jesus came and he did his signs, what did they do? They, they either, some of them believed, some of them argued about it, um, but the signs were pointers to Jesus as the Messiah. They were acts done by Jesus that identified him as the one of whom the prophets foretold. But Jesus told us, that um, seeing was not believing. He said that to the people he fed. He said, you come to me because you've got your belly full. Um, uh, when, the, when Jesus was approached by the synagogue ruler, I believe it was in John 4, to heal his son, Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And we know that that is something that um, 
that was always happening, at least in the days of Paul, and I believe that it happens even today. People are looking for signs and wonders. It seems as though the scripture is not sufficient. They need something else. And so they'll say, well, I pray that that so-and-so is healed so that they'll turn to Christ. Well, I hope they turn to Christ too. But the scripture is sufficient. Now, I'm not saying that God never does that, so don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying, what is our mentality toward uh, what God does? What's His focus? His focus is always on the Word. Believe the Word of God. So you have um, Jesus saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, in John 2, 18, after Jesus cleansed the temple, the Jews asked him, what sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? And then Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the, what? They believed the scripture. They didn't, what, the sign maybe fo- focused their attention, but they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Paul warns us in Colossians, or in 1 Corinthians 1, 22, that Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called both by Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. I heard this great sermon, I think it was Wendy that sent it to me the other day by John MacArthur. Now I don't always listen to, to John. He's a great preacher, though. I'll never, I'll never, uh, I'll never dis, uh, diminish his, his conciseness. I really think he's one of the great preachers of our day. Um, probably one of the most clear preachers you ever hear. Uh, but he was talking about the fact that the gospel is being abandoned. Um, he said he thought he thought that he would go through his ministry, you know, uh, arguing with liberals and everything who were denying the scriptures. He said, "But what bothers me is that I'm going and now I'm arguing with people who call themselves evangelicals who are beginning to deny the gospel." And I don't. Yeah, I think he said, and "Don't quote me," but I think he said, "I don't understand how to deal with this." I wasn't prepared for this to happen. Even people who claim the faith are making departures. Well, if seeing is not believing, then what is believing? Well, secondly then, believing is trusting in Christ as revealed in Scripture. John draws attention to what he has written in that verse that we read. But he, in his gospel draws our attention to the word of God previously given. So, for example, when um, uh, Philip finds his brother Nathaniel, he says to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, I know Nathaniel takes a little issue with being from Nazareth, what good comes from there. But he learned. He really did. He found out. Um, But the point is... Philip points to Moses and the law and also the prophets. Again, um, 
Uh, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them the light dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, we read in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then this classic passage in Luke 24, 44 through 47, when Jesus, I'm just going to summarize, it says, um, All that was written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. So the scripture is centered on on Christ. I have a new book I wanted to go through real quick. It's not real long, but it's just called Jesus on Every Page. <laughs> Jesus on Every Page. It's interesting. John's Gospel is found among the earliest manuscript attestations. It used to be thought that John's Gospel was something that the Gnostics utilized, but evidence from discoveries in Oxyrhynchus, Egypt, have changed that opinion. John was actually among the most used of the gospel accounts in the early and second and third centuries of the church. John was a very popular gospel. Again, the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah was so often referred to in the New Testament and in the early church fathers as speaking of Christ that Isaiah has become known as the fifth gospel. That's how often they referred to the prophet Isaiah. And the point is this, Christianity has always emphasized the written word. It is a known fact that the early church gathered multiple times during the week to listen to the word of God read. They gathered that they didn't gather for any other reason. They just gathered to hear uh, someone read the scripture. And interestingly, uh, at least what I've read, um, when the, when they were reading from the gospel, one of the gospels, they called them the memoirs of the apostles. But when they were reading from them, if a mistake was made by the reader, the the congregation could could say, "Wait a minute, that's not what it says. It says this." And a lot of times, manuscripts were corrected because it was corrected in group, you know. And when there's a group, because people listened and they remembered, which is something we kind of lost today. We don't focus on memorization as they did. Um, I don't know how high the literacy rate was. I think it's higher than some people thought, think it was. But um, they did do a lot of memorizing. That's how they. That's how they inculcated. They didn't have. They couldn't go around and carry. They couldn't go say, "I'm going to buy me a brand new Bible." Sorry, that didn't work. If you got a, if you had a codex, and usually the church, the church gravitated toward a codex, um, which is like a book, a book form. That's what they gravitated toward. They moved away from the scroll. And um, I think Roman law still used a scroll. But um, the, the church gravitated toward a codex so that we have codexes. Uh, we have books. Well, to get one of those for your own personal use required some kind of wealth, right? You just didn't go out and, and you know, no normal slave could run out and have 
have a Bible uh, printed for himself. It just wouldn't work. So now John wrote to readers so that we might believe. Well, what does John want us to believe? Well, first of all, we read that he wants us to believe, that's what the verse says, he wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ. Um, when uh, Simon uh, went to find his own brother, he said to him, John 1.41, we have found the Messiah. And then John, the writer, puts in parentheses, which translated means Christ. So John makes sure we know that. The woman at the well, she said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. John keeps putting the words. It's like he's quoting people, right? It sounds like he's quoting someone and then he's saying that that means Christ. And um, so uh, when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And again, um, in John 4, the woman at the well She says, come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And they went out from the city and were coming to see Jesus. So John says, I've written these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he means by that the Messiah. That is the Messiah revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is that one. He's the one that was promised from Genesis 3 on. You know, he will bruise your, he will, you will bruise his heel. He will, he will, he will crush your head. Um, you know, um, Genesis 5, when Noah's father thought he would be the one that would deliver us from the curse of the ground that the Lord cursed uh, because of Adam. So, on and on in the scripture, you see this, these just, they're little kind of indications to look ahead, look forward, right? So Abraham's told, in your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, you can look at seed collectively, meaning all of Abraham's children, or you could look at seed singularly. It's, uh, it's just a singular word. So it could mean one or many, right? Well, Paul says, you know, Jesus, he's born the seed of a woman, the seed of Abraham. Um, Christ is the one that was that was uh, predicted way back then, and um, G- John wants us to believe um, that Christ, that He is the Messiah. The second thing He wants us to believe is that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, many people will balk at this; Islam balks at it because they actually understand it. Um, but other people think that when Jesus is called the Son of God, that he's just, he's just, he's a creation of God. He's a son like Adam is a son. Adam's called the Son of God, Jesus, Son of God, same kind of thing. The difference is Jesus is son by nature. We are sons by creation. That's the difference. We're, we're not the same as he. We're adopted sons, but we're not natural born sons of God. Well, is that true? Is that what the scripture teaches? Well, John has mentioned this earlier in his gospel when he talks about Jesus being the Son of God. Um, He healed a man who was lame from birth and uh, the Pharisees were trying to wonder who this was because he told the man to pick up his pallet and walk. So the Pharisees asked him, who is this man? Who is the man who said to you, take up your pallet and walk? This is in John chapter 5, verses 12 to 18. Take up your pallet and walk. Who said that to you? 
But he who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus broke the Sabbath in their opinion. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now you see, Islam doesn't believe that God has a son. Because if he did, he would be sinning. They understand um, that that can't be. Uh, son by creation, yeah, but they don't even like to use the term. So, no, no son of God. It can't be that God has a son. Because if he has a son, then the son is like him. It can't be otherwise. Um, I wish some of our cults would get that in their head, but but they don't. So, so John makes this a point of... Uh, he makes this a point. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the first thing. That's important. But it's equally important that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God because the Messiah is the Son of God. Psalm 2 is a good place. Um, uh, uh, there are other Psalms where, where the Son and the Messiah are brought into connection. But it's also true. David was... You know, David was the king, and he, he was a type of the Messiah. So on and on you go through the scripture. It's important that you believe who the Messiah is. It wasn't somebody before. It wasn't somebody who led a rebellion like was later understood um, in the book of Acts. We read that. But it wasn't somebody who led some kind of rebellion. This is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. You've got to accept both propositions. It's not enough to just believe the one. You have to believe and accept both of them because that's what faith is. That's what it means to believe. And then thirdly, John says, I want you to believe. Believing is this, that you might have life in his name. That is, faith is focused on life. And it's not just physical life. That's not what's in view. Um, it's about eternal life. All throughout John's gospel, we read about eternal life. Um, when Jesus is talking to... Um, um, let's slip my name. The teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. Um, he says to him, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he's referring to his crucifixion. That whoever believes in him may have ever or eternal life. And then John's comment after that, or it could be it's Christ's words, there's debate about that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have Eternal life. Now, what is eternal life? When Jesus is talking to Mary at the, when he's going to raise Lazarus, he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Mary, do you believe this? 
Well, what's he talking about everlasting life? What is everlasting life? What is eternal life? Jesus answers that in the high priestly pair. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, by knowing there doesn't mean just know about. He means know you in the sense that sometimes we talk about um, human sexuality. A man knows his wife. It's an intimate knowledge. It's a knowledge of a person, of, of being involved and knowing them and having fellowship with them. And that's why John in 1 John talks about having fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And you also have fellowship with the church. It's, a t- it's an intimate communion that we share with God and with Christ. We have life and it's in Christ's name. It's because of Christ that we have life. When um, Diana's grandfather died, um, many times I had, um, in our, when we were together, I would just bring up the topic, I'd try to bring up the topic of, of, of the gospel, and he would just change the subject really fast. But he was in the hospital, and it was towards the end of his life. And he was in the hospital, and he's on oxygen. He said, I don't, I don't know why this has happened to me. I don't understand. He's going on and on. And I tried to talk to him. And then I, I told him, I said, uh, Grandpa, can I read from Scripture for you? And he said, yeah. So I read John 11. And then I looked at him and I said, um, this question wasn't just asked to Mary. This question is asked to you right now. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ is the resurrection and the life? Do you, would you trust in Him? And he told me, Yes. You know, so I prayed with him. Does that mean that he got saved or anything? I have no idea. It was a door that God opened for me to speak a word to Diana's grandfather. And I really appreciated that opportunity. But that that was the passage I took him to, John chapter 11. And I asked him that question, do you believe this? So believing is believing that Jesus is the Christ as revealed in Scripture, which leads us to the third point, and it's very short. Believing is having confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture. John said, if everything that was to be written that Jesus did, the world could not contain the books. Okay? We already have enough trouble containing the books. Um, I have trouble containing the books I have. Um, And that's just writing about what's been written. Um, But it should drive us back to this fact that God has given us His Word. And His Word doesn't give us a comprehensive knowledge of all things. It doesn't. Um, But what it does give us is the knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ. It reveals God to us. It tells us not only who God is, but what kind of God He is. That He's triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know some people don't believe that. But that's not the point. The point is that that's what the Bible teaches. And so we believe that Christ and the Father and the Spirit are all one God. Three distinct persons. Can I explain that um, as a, so a child could understand it? And the answer is no. I have difficulty with that. A child has to learn to believe what's written. Just like other people have to believe what's written. 
you can you can show them well this is what it says about God this is what it says about God this is what it says about God and then the question is do you believe what it says about God well if they say well you know I I, I don't understand it and well um, I can't we can't help that there's a certain point at which we cannot go God is God and we are preachers and we cannot uh, go beyond what he has revealed we can to the extent that we could pull things together God wants us to use our minds for goodness sake uh, that's why we have the doctrine of the Trinity because people use their minds but um, it really is a formulation of the church that we believe the scripture teaches us but we come back to the scripture it's always back to the scripture if you're going to talk to someone about salvation you're not going to be able to argue them into a corner where they say okay I have to believe it does not work that way God is not saving the wise of this world that's our problem today we think that we can argue someone into the kingdom of heaven well I'm not saying don't be don't use a defense Paul used a defense I'm not saying that we shouldn't have apologetics. That's not my point. The point is this, that in the end, people have to believe the gospel. They have to believe what the scripture says. They have to say, I believe that. They have to pray to the God who's revealed there. They have to accept the salvation that's revealed there. That's not something that we can, we can force on people. That's like MacArthur said in his sermon. The gospel that we preach is the most foolish thing you can think of. Yes. It just doesn't make any sense. It's, it's, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. That's what Paul says. But, and we have to learn to accept that. The gospel is not a proposition that we can go out and prove. Though we have good defense, it's not something that we can say, okay... Have I proved it to you now? You can accept it. The answer is, if that's what someone does, I mean, some people do. I'm not going to say it never happens, but the point is this. The gospel has to be believed. It has to be believed, and faith says I accept what the Word of God says. And if I happen to come to that conclusion by some nice rational argument, then great. And if I don't come to that conclusion by some rational argument, by just looking, but by just looking at the text and saying, you know, that, I, that, that, I believe that, then that's great. Yes. Because it's a matter of faith. And believing is having confidence in what the Scripture says about Christ and about God. Well, the Word of God is sufficient. That's what I believe John is driving us to. And Jesus said this to the people of his day. He said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And where do we find those words? In the Gospels, in the Epistles. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
And it is these that bear witness of me. And I do not ask in behalf of of these alone, or that was John 5. Jesus, when he prays the high priestly prayer, he says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those who believe on me through their word, the word of the apostles that would be recorded for us that is our New Testament. So it's the word of God that is the focus, and that's the question that you're always going to be fetched with. Do I believe what the scripture teaches? Do I believe what the scripture teaches about Christ and salvation? That's the bottom line question that is before us and before all men. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do give you thanks and we praise you and we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would make that word effective in us. Help us to be good. Help us to be people who uh, make disciples of all nations, the people around us. Help us to not be ashamed, but to realize, yes, the gospel is foolish, but you've called us to make disciples and, and teach them that gospel and bring them into your kingdom. We don't do it on our own. We realize that it's not something we do. It's something the Holy Spirit does. But we pray that you would use us to that end. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. Let's turn to hymn 140. Hymn 140. Um, what's the name of it? Hymn 140, O Word of God Incarnate. Hymn number 140, O Word of God Incarnate.